Uh, welcome to the Bailey blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Uh, I'm your host. Uh, eh, whatever. I'll add this later. Uh, today's topic is going to be an opus by, I guess you can call him a philosopher. His name is Clayton Atreus. His, its title is Two Arms and One Head. It's a 200-page suicide note written by a paraplegic, specifically a paraplegic that has been paralyzed from uh, the chest down. His only functioning body parts are his two arms and his head. He's unable to make use or feel anything below his nipples, as he describes it. It's, um, I guess you can, ref- uh, it's fair to s- call it a book, right? Uh, it was uh, published after he killed himself. Uh, and it details the existential agony that he's suffering through and how he's grappling with it. And ultimately how he comes to the conclusion that ending his life is the rational way to go about it. Is that a fair summary? Uh, I, I'd object you seen to some of those points, but I expect that those will come up in the discussion. I think it's generally a great overview. I, I object to referring to it as two arms and one head. It's two arms, one head, like two girls, one cup. Also, the official title is Two Arms and a Head. One thing to flag, maybe we could insert this in editing at the start, is um, Xantos and I was saying at the start that probably we should maybe start by saying, look, this is about, we're going to be talking about this book, uh, this opus, um, that you should go away and read right now, um, probably without doing any advanced reading on it, other than to know that it's really dark and it's about uh, a paraplegic. Okay. Um, and so just insert that at the start. Sure. Um, and also maybe just a trigger warning. I know, yeah, I don't, I don't do trigger warnings, but I'm inclined to do one for this book. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I said to Dogletine that it's more of a, in my mind, at least an info hazard type um, yeah. thing, not so much a strict trigger warning as a, this is, this is a book that, that I, it changed me in a way reading it. Warning um, may cause uncontrollable lusts for life and giga chaddom. <laughs> Uh, so the Bailey is not in the habit of offering content warnings, uh, but I think it is perfectly appropriate given the work that we're about to discuss. It is highly recommended that you go out and read it yourself, uh, Google it, or click uh, the link in the show notes. It should take you about four to five hours. Many of the participants in today's episode finished it in a single setting. It is gripping. Uh, for me personally, it was the by far the most disturbing thing I've ever read. Uh, but disturbing in a, I, I guess I'll get into the nuance of what exactly I mean by that. So it's, it's a, a, it's to your benefit to have read the work before listening to a bunch of idiots try to dissect it. Uh, so that's that's what we would suggest at the moment. All right. So today's panel is I'll let them introduce themselves. But as far as I can tell, I don't think anyone is physically disabled. Is that correct? Yeah. Let's start with you, Kulak. So, uh, two arms, one head. I I found it to be probably one of the best things I've ever read. Um, certainly one of the best kind of works I've ever read on living and dying well. Um, I walked away from it with a very renewed lust for life. Um, I actually bought a motorcycle after reading it. Um, in imitation of Clayton and probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And people who followed me on this podcast or elsewhere will know that's a huge part of my identity now. Cool. Uh, Xantos. Yeah. My name is Xantos Sell. Um, 
I think two arms, one head. I definitely agree with Kulak that this is an incredibly powerful work uh, and one that absolutely deserves to be read, considered, thought about. Um, it definitely has lived, it has changed me and it lives in my head with me um, as, a, as a part of who I am now, uh, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. But I generally, unlike Kulak, do not, uh, it was not life affirming uh, for me, potentially very much the opposite. Uh, and I think that it poses real, true problems that everyone needs to grapple with. And ultimately, uh, I'm not sure that there are positive conclusions uh, available. Uh, let's start with our special guest today uh, from France. He goes by the name de Chien. Go ahead, Mr. Doug. You want to introduce yourself, Doug Latine? Wonderful. No, so it's a pleasure to be here for my first Bailey podcast. Um, I actually came across this for the first time you've seen in a, a post you made on the, on the subreddit. And I put off reading it because, you know, I, I don't like reading morbid stuff in general. Um, but, you know, I got to 3 a.m. and I thought, screw it, I've got nothing better to do. And I ended <laughs> up going to sleep four and a half hours later, having finished it. And it's basically stuck with me horrifically since then. So this is my chance to do some catharsis and uh, share my thoughts with you guys. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know, um, recently, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a criminal defense attorney. I had a client that passed away and uh, I wrote a post, uh, I guess, in the wake of me learning about his death. And I cited uh, two arms and a head as something, a piece of work that stuck with me. And particularly when revisiting the notability of someone's life when they, when it ends the, to give some general background on, on the book or the work, the opus, uh, it's written by Clayton Atreus. That's not, that's his pen name. I believe that his real name is Clayton Schwartz. He, uh, was on a motorcycle trip in Mexico and at one point, uh, collided with a donkey on the side of the road. His, uh, vertebrate, got crushed. And as a result, he became a paraplegic afterwards. This was, um, he would say that he was at the prime of his life, uh, very physically fit. He describes himself as very attractive, very confident, uh, has been socially, romantically, sexually successful up until that point. And, uh, he had to grapple with his new reality just as he was set to go to law school. He was paralyzed. He spent about, I believe like a month or two later, he started law school and about two years after his, uh, paralyzation, two years after his incident, he, uh, killed himself. So it, the book was written in that and somewhere around there. I guess one thing to flag is, uh, I've seen at least some people speculating as to whether it all could be an elaborate sort of written backstory. Um, I did some digging on this and, uh, I mean, there's a little bit online. Um, there's a thread where you can read, I think it's on Adventure on, a, on an adventure Riders um, website, where you can see him talking about the motorcycle trip he's doing. And then eventually he gets to a point where there's a gap between his posts about in this thread. And then he reports back saying, oh, I just got horribly paralyzed. And it's kind of interesting how in that thread, at least at first, he comes across as sort of kind of trying to be stoical and optimistic. Um, but anyway, so that thread exists. That thread is timestamped to the period in question. So that's one piece of evidence. And there's also some info on 
and memorials to his life um, that have been set up. Not a ton, not a great deal of info. But I guess the single biggest thing that makes me convinced this is this is legit is this has been around for a long time, right? This thing was entered the public domain, what, 10 years ago? And it's just kind of bubbled up occasionally in online spaces here and there since then. But, you know, it's clearly not the marketing campaign for a book or some, you know, he's not going to reveal next year that it was actually all written under a nom de plume and it's all some some great story. So, I mean, I think there's no reason to suspect that it's anything other than what it claims to be. Right. I, I've i seen like, uh, what is it? I've seen skepticism that this is real and I'm kind of puzzled by it. Uh, there is the motorcycle uh, forum thread where he, he was a regular poster. He talked about what he purchased, how much it was, uh, what the trip he was going to uh, was going to entail, and then con- confirmed that he was paralyzed after that. Uh, there's also an obituary. I've seen some skepticism that it's fake. Part of me doesn't really care because even if this is a work of fiction, it's still meaningful as a work of fiction on its own because it grapples with themes about life and death that are, are important regardless of whether or not the author actually um, experienced them. I Again, I, I want to stress, I have no reason to think that this is fake, but even if it was, I don't really care. I can pretty much assure you that it's real. The ADV Writer Forum, um, it's still an act active thread there it's actually their most popular thread i think like that are like top 10 when that are top 10 and it's still ongoing um the public the publication history of um two arms one head itself like you could write write a book about it um there's an elaborate backstory sorry to it um he had published this as his suicide note and had kind of intended it as a book and I won't go over the recriminations, but there's a conflict between his mother and some of some of his school friends as to um, whether it should be published in its entirety online or whether it should be edited down. His mother really disagreed with him philosophically. She was a devout Christian who uh, was somewhat estranged from him at the time, and and that all plays out within the the th- ADV writer thread from first publication date to to guys first linking it to AD- the ADV writer thread, taking it down to them later concluding it's kind of a lost cause to her posting his, his um, obituary and a link to the, the um, guy who played Superman, Christopher Reeves, Reeves foundation to donate in his, in his name for um, spinal injury research. Um, this is probably one of the most documented events for like a, a single post thing like this. It, this thing is pretty much as real as anything else on the internet. You'd need a full conspiracy for it to be fake. So just to say something briefly before we move on about what Yasin was saying um this doesn't puzzle me when the skepticism comes up. Uh, I think it makes actually a lot of sense because to accept and to understand uh, the work, to understand the takeaway that this leaves you with, um, I think there's a lot, there's a large strain of thought and a lot of people who simply don't, they, 
reject it. They refuse. They say either it's fake or this person, you know, Clayton was just mentally depressed and should have taken antidepressants. And there's just a complete refusal from a, a subsection of people to be willing to give any amount of merit uh, philosophically or otherwise to this work because it presents, uh, because of the conclusions that it presents. He actually even adds in chapter 11, um, he quotes some Browning, you know, the snatch of the poem, all's right with the world. And then says, I don't want the things I've written about in this book to be true. You don't want them to be true either, but most of you have a little more leeway than I do on that point. Yeah. I think that's an incredibly prescient quote. Uh, yeah. And it's quite ironic because the entire theme of the work or the major theme is grappling with unpleasant reality, reality and ex and the contortions people will will put themselves in to try and avoid grappling with with what exactly paraplegia means, even even the lifers who are par- paraplegic. So for the work itself to be dismissed as as fake is kind of not exactly ironic because Clayton himself kind of predicts it, but it certainly fits the theme. So maybe a good place to start is to echo how uh, Clayton describes his life as a paraplegic. Uh, This is, you know, much more worn out in detail in his reading. And again, you should have read this before listening to this. Uh, But I don't think uh, I've ever had like the mind. uh, uh, I've never had any like thought uh, exercise where I wanted to think about what exactly what it means to be paralyzed. So he gets into gruesome detail. He talks about how he has no control over his bowels, uh, no control over his bladder. He urinates himself constantly. He shits himself constantly and doesn't know it's happening. The way he has to defecate is that he, he has to sit on top of a toilet, put on a glove, and then essentially just fish out feces out of his uh, ass. Uh, he doesn't, because he has no control over his bowel. He can't push anything out. He also talks about his inability to have sex. He tried it once during his uh, paralysis uh, with uh, an ex-girlfriend of his. He's able to get and maintain an erection, but he just feels absolutely nothing. And uh, the one time that it happened to him, he felt this horror at the disassociation with what was going on as if he was just an observer rather than a participant in, in the act. He has fair to say a tremendous amount of contempt for disability rights advocates. Uh, he, especially the ones that fight against the, uh, the right to end the, it's euphemistically referred to as death with dig- dignity, but I like the straightforward name of assisted suicide. He's definitely much in favor of that as a way of maintaining authority and autonomy over your own body. And he has just hard to overstate how much hatred and contempt and disdain he has for anyone that gets in the way of that. He has an extremely skeptical look uh, on anyone that tries to, I guess, spin the life of paraplegic positively. Uh, He quotes with condemnation people who say that my life is not that different as with paralysis, I can basically do anything that able-bodied individuals can. Um, it's fair to say that he's just surrounded by torment. He's He hates his life. He hates his existence. 
He finds very little uh, to look forward to, and he's constantly reminded of what he was able to do back when he was able-bodied and fit and attractive and confident and successful. So one of the things that really stuck out for me um, in terms of the day-to-day challenges, well, two things. The first is just kind of an obvious one when you think about it, which is that everything takes so much longer for him. He talks about how you know his morning routine went from being you know, half an hour or something to like two and a half hours just to get get his uh, bowels ready for the day and get ready and get prepared. So that's an immediate suck on his time and also just getting out of a car, how long that takes. And even just my times when I've you know broken an arm or um, had a sprained ankle, I, I can I already resent the extra imposition of my time that imposes that creates and uh, I can uh, it made me realize powerfully, crap, you know how, how I never have enough time to do all the things I need to do anyway. How much worse would it be in that situation? I mean, maybe a minor point, but I think it's probably one that dogs him throughout his life. Another point that really stuck with me is when he talks about because he has no core control. His head and arms are just balanced on this column of jelly. And so he talks about how he cannot put his arms forward and accept a dinner plate that's passed into his hands without collapsing forward. And the idea of just not ever being able to be based in the, in the spatial sense, not ever being able to be sort of have a secure grounding is terrifying when you start to imagine it. The idea that you are just completely, you can't really move without, um, you can't really move your arms without risking being moved or holding on at all times. That that also was kind of haunting for me. Yeah, and he unpacks it further. Like at points, he mentions that um, his speaking voice is even is even significantly weakened. Like he can't actually express himself vocally, even to the extent that you or I would take for granted, because he can't control the lower half of his lungs. So if you wanted to take on a commanding tone or a thoughtful tone or or just express himself in a million ways that that you or I can't conceive as being a unique thing that could be taken away because we do it subconsciously, like Pax is a great deal that he can't really express himself. His connections with other people are lost because conversation itself is kind of is taken on this uncanny valley nature for him. He talks at points of um, not really being able to to form relationships or even really feel out other people in the same way because he can he can't converse or interact in it in the meaningful ways you would normally. Yeah, so we're not going to do be able to do the work justice. You again are encouraged uh, to have read it in its entirety, and we're going to assume that you have read it. This is just kind of like brief background information. But we're going to talk about the ramifications of, of what Clayton has written about his uh, situation. Xantos? The way that I experienced the work and read it, it was incredibly impactful for me because, first of all, I identified very strongly with Clayton. I think we were on uh, very similar life paths and were very similar people in certain respects. Uh, so it was impactful in that way. But it was also impactful... Because I think his thoughts and feelings about paraplegia are eminently gener- generalizable and are reflected in almost everyday life for many, many people. And I think that if that's right, and I think it is, 
then that has some fairly broad and powerful and grave uh, ramifications that people need to come to terms with one way or the other. And I think broadly people don't come to terms with it and just kind of uh, shovel shit on top of it uh, to obfuscate. If I can chime in the Zantos, because it sounded dangerously close to what you're saying is though that hit the choice that he made is one that you think it's a rational one for broader people, for more people in his condition. I don't think that that's something I would necessarily take away. I mean, I think his circumstances are exceptional. And I mean, whilst the suicide rate for people with paraplegia is high, um, it's still, you know, only, a, uh, only, I think it's around 14%. So it is obviously, a, you know, a serious risk, but I mean, I, I don't think one law, unless I don't take the lesson from this, this work that, uh, Oh, more people should do exactly what he did. That, that's definitely not a lesson I would take from it. I think I, I can be more clear, maybe, and say that while I think, of course, Clayton was exceptional, if you look at his writing and his thought, that I think his circumstances are far from exceptional in a certain way. And that paraplegia was one of the ways that he experienced um, some of the challenges and some of the things that are reflected in all of our lives broadly. Now, I think that that's what you do with that and what you make of that is up to the individual, of course. What, what would you say is an example of uh, the broadly applicable experience that he's relaying? So one, Clayton is very uh, conscious of aesthetics and he, he spends a lot of time talking about what beauty is and what ought to be. Um, and I think that if you take a critical lens to the sorts of lives that all, that many people live, including um, myself, I think from an aesthetic perspective, it's not great. It doesn't, it doesn't look, uh, you know, people aren't living the lives of Leonardo da Vinci, right. Or aren't, aren't living, yeah, beautiful lives in the way that Clayton. I love that that's your go-to example of a beautiful life is Leonardo da Vinci. But you you take my point, you see. Okay, I I, I take, I do take your point. Uh, so one of the reasons I cited uh, this work, Two Arms and a Head, in my post about the death of my client is because I was uh, trying to grapple with the relative worth of of human life, and I mean this literally in that some people are just treated as if their life doesn't matter or isn't as important as, uh, as others. Uh, in the context of m me, it was like in my, in my job where I routinely have to give terrible news to clients and say, yeah, you're going to, you're going, you're going to prison for, you know, 70 months or 120 months or whatever the fuck the sentence is going to be. There's, there's kind of part of me that it's hard to suppress me shrugging and being like, well, what were you doing with your life anyway? That was worthwhile. Uh, I'm cognizant of that at least, but I can't say that it's like completely uh, disappeared off of my uh, palate. There's um, Clayton talks about people who spend, who are sentenced to a life in prison. And this is something I, I just, I'm completely baffled by. And I share the perplexion that Clayton uh, wrote about where he doesn't understand why people who are sentenced to a life in prison just don't commit suicide. He's completely baffled by that decision. I, he doesn't understand it. And I share that perplexion. I don't understand it either. I don't get what people have to live for 
because when I try to formulate this existence in my mind where I try to think uh, through like what exactly it means, I, I don't see what, what there is to, to live for, uh, especially if you're held in solitary confinement 23 hours uh, a day by yourself in a cell with no prospect of bettering your life, no prospect of having a fulfilling romantic life, uh, no prospect of accolades to follow you or whatever you're looking for in life. It just seems, it seems hopeless. I still have to, I still have to accept the reality that people don't kill themselves. So maybe they know something that I don't. So perhaps it's myopia on, on my end. I think that's another facet you've seen that I think echoes very much through everydayness is Clayton has a very clear picture of what exactly a life worth living is. Um, and he is, he lays it out and he evaluates it against his circumstances and ultimately makes the decision that uh, I will not live a life worth living. Um, and I think that generally people do not uh, work work in that process of having a clear conception of what, of, of why life. So there is, there is kind of like a paradox or a contra. Mm, there's a riddle that I've, I've thought through. So the way Clayton describes his prior life before being paralyzed, he just comes off as like this giga Chad where he's just like, you know, perfectly fit, uh, super handsome. All the women love him. He has sex with beautiful women. He travels around the world. He goes on a motorcycle. He's just like, cool, hot shit. And then he's going to be a lawyer and have like an amazing life after that. So by, by, you know, any measure, he won the genetic lottery, he won the societal ranking lottery and he's conditioned or he's been habituated to having this life where things just happen for him. Things, uh, look, you know, work out for him without him necessarily having to try for a variety of things, uh, for a variety of reasons. So there is an element of, uh, on my end where I think, well, it's only he's only so agonized with being paralyzed because he's been habituated to what by any measure sounds like an amazing uh, set of circumstances that he chanced upon. Uh, that's definitely something I don't I don't remember if he uh, if he touched upon that that subject. Clayton does touch upon that subject, and he he uses a lot of really poetic. Um, animal metaphors um he talks about eagle he hypothesizes an eagle who's captured by a farmer and has its wings clipped and locked in a cage so that it can never fly again and then then looking over at the chick and wailing all day and looking over at the chickens who look at it as if it's it's like an impetuant petulant child Oh, you had your wings clips. Clips. So what? Are you t- too good to sit sit down here with us in the chicken coop? Would that be a circumstance where he would sign off on the on the notion that ignorance is bliss? This is where he's very I I find him beautiful and incredible and incredible. He almost has like a perfect pagan pagan kind of pre-Christian set set of values, this kind of Nietzschean ideal that you also see in the um european upper upper crust where where they just ex where he just accepts no my or he did accept no no my existence is better this is part part of my nature the same way that a european gentleman say would accept 
know if someone insults me, either A, they're a peasant, in which case I'm going to beat the crap out of them for in- insulting me, or or B, they're a gentleman, in which case a gentleman doesn't get to insult me. I'll challenge him to a duel, and and there's a good chance one of us will die over this matter. My honor is that important. important. Um, I, w- I was weirdly reminded of reading Two Arms, One Head of a story of one of the last samurais who, after the Meiji, Meiji restoration, where they got, got rid of um, the Japanese feudal system, um, committed suicide because he said so that his country had become a place where virtue was impossible, that no man could live honorably any, anymore in Japan. And of course, what he defined, it, defined as virtue was the theory of, je- of samurai honor, where essentially if a peasant looks at you askew in the street, you can cut him dead. Then the second, the codes, codes of samurai honor were that extreme, but he... This touches Kulak on, I think, a large swath of criticism of the book, which is he was wrong to hold the values that he, hold, that he held. So even if the person was going to admit that, yes, assuming he had those values, that his his uh, course of action was rational, uh, then the next kind of fallback is to say, well, he was he was incorrect, or he shouldn't have had the system of values that he had. So the counterexample I think of is, imagine someone that's born into wealth, and for whatever, we're talking about like, you know, billions, billions of dollars of, of wealth, you know, having crystal with gold and in the bottle like every morning or whatever fuck uh, rich people do. Uh, so someone born into and habituated into mega ultra rich levels of wealth uh, and then their family loses it. And I think a, a big reason why uh, Clayton's stories resonates is because he's an, you know, he's an amazing writer and he's able to get you immersed into his situation and perhaps uh, being able to describe it in such a way that it's difficult to to try to rationalize your way out of it and say, oh, it can't be that bad because he's he's basically like forcing your head into the muck and saying, no, look at it. It is that bad. This is fucking horrible. Uh, so I think maybe that's why he's so successful. Whereas if someone was similarly situated in the sense that they experience as much of a utility drop as Clayton has, uh, so they used to be ultra mega level rich, but now you know their family can't afford all the accoutrements that that level of lifestyle typically affords. So they can't go to the Hamptons every weekend. They they can't just like buy whatever clothes they want. Uh, they don't have access to that anymore, and they just find it agonizing. I think if that person said, you know, I think I want to kill myself because I can't afford a three hundred thousand dollar Lamborghini anymore. And that's not a life I want to be living. I think he that person was just being made fun of. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like you're you're whining about some inconsequential bullshit. Uh but fundamentally, I don't think that situation is necessarily different from uh from Clayton's. Not on a qualitative level, maybe on a quantitative level. But if they both have suffered this steep decline in utility in their given lifestyle. Why would one person's complaint about their situation be considered more rational and more noble than the others? Doug Latine, go ahead. I think I raised a similar concern with um, Xanthos when I was reading the book. I got about halfway through and I had this feeling of sort of rage. How could he be 
so narrow-minded? How could he build his life on such a narrow foundation that it's vulnerable, um, that it's incapable of adapting? And I think I used explicitly sort of a, uh, a similar example, you know, someone who is unable to, I don't know, yeah, play tennis when they want to. And they says, well, if I can no longer play tennis, that's it. I'm offing myself. Um, when I finished the book, actually, and I think this is one reason that the book is definitely, even though it can maybe seem repetitive, isn't quite the right word. But I mean, even though it's going through the same themes over and over again, there is a real development over the course of the book. So if you get halfway through and you think, you know, I get the idea, then you know, keep on, keep on reading. Um, what I think really became clear to me is that um, he had a very clear, noble vision of his life. And going back to your question, you see, and I think that's the difference, right? Trying to model it in quantitative terms misses the point. The fact is the person who thinks of their life as defined by the luxuries of elite living, that's not a good life. That's not what intuitively resonates with us as the model of a certain kind of virtuous life. By contrast, what he was trying to build with his life, this life of masculine energy and activity, um, enjoying all the fruits of the world, this kind of thing, that is a model of a good life. So I think in a way that's hard to capture in purely quantitative terms, when he lost that opportunity, that's reasonable in a way for him to say, you know, the hut smokes, I move out. I can no longer live under these conditions. That's reasonable. In it. There is a qualitative difference between that and someone who chooses to end their life for reasons that don't seem constitutively associated with a particular laudable vision of the good life. I think that's where the difference lies. Well, Clayton was weirdly blessed in that the, his horrible condition that he found intolerable was one that he'd been reduced to was also one that the vast majority of the reader readership would likewise consider a horrifying buying reduction in quality of life, something that they pay probably literally billions of dollars to not, not endure if given given the choice. I don't know anyone who would who would be willingly paralyzed from the nipples down in exchange for even a billion dollar dollars. Maybe someone incredibly old. But there is there is definitely one hundred percent a tradition of people who have lived lives up to an excellence standard, have have lived dreaming of a standard of excellence and then commit suicide when that became impossible. Um, famously, there were the Romans who committed suicide when the Republic fell or when they lost a struggle for power. Think um, Cato or Brutus committing suicide so that they wouldn't fan, fall into the hell, hands of Octavian or Think of Mark Antony coming suicide with Cleopatra again, so he wouldn't fall into the hands of Octavian. But there are also Christian works on this matter. Um, the classic, probably one of the top ten novels of all time, um, Clarissa by Samuel Richardson, is about a um, uh, upper, upper, upper middle class um, um, English young English woman, um, kind of the same class as, as um, Jane Austen's characters. Not quite so rich that nothing could ever touch them, but rich enough that they could marry into that status. Um, and that story revolves around her being kidnapped and, and raped and held in a brothel and her pretty much choosing, choosing death rather than be reduced to either her captors, captors kept woman 
woman or to being a prostitute like the other women of the brothel, which was, is a very real possibility that she could be reduced to. And that's considered one of the great Christian martyr, martyr tales. That's considered one of the great great embodiments of of literally Puritan, in the case of Samuel Richardson, ideals of femininity and Christian Christian faith, that she starves herself and wastes away rather than let her virtue be be infected. And if we're a culture that says, no, Clarissa should just be a whore, no, Mark Antony should be taken back to Rome's and chains, no, Cato should just accept that he's going to live in tyranny. Like, that's a very sick culture when we can't say no, that when we can't, like Seneca, say, say that life without the courage for death is slavery. Xantos? Right. So I think that this, this raises a very, this is the, this is the, one of the questions of the work, right? Is, uh, on what grounds are you going to criticize somebody for holding that certain things are intolerable? Uh, And I think that I, I would almost guarantee you that it's going to be either some form of straightforward appeal to mass conformity that, Oh, other people don't live this way or don't hold those things to be intolerable. Or it's going to be some sort of appeal to a, a principle of life affirmation in which Clayton, we can know that Clayton shouldn't have held that this was intolerable because of what he ultimately ended up doing. And I think that that is just completely circular and self-defeating. Right. But what, I guess like the, the question is, uh, what, rubric do we use to evaluate it? Because if someone, you know, if your friend gets a paper cut and they're like, I can't take this anymore, I'm going to kill myself. I think every, pretty much everyone's going to think, okay, like something's wrong with you, like mentally. Uh, that doesn't seem like a reasonable reaction to have given the circumstances. Uh, I think Clayton escapes this criticism because he gives it to us like in great detail. So is it just like a, a level of, of uh, is it just like a matter of where we draw the line? Uh, Clayton does spend a lot of time pushing back on the idea that life is worth living period, like a hundred percent. And he does so by evoking some gruesome and vivid uh, scenarios where, uh, just, you know, people are taken into captive and, uh, or people are living a life of captivity and it ends in a gruesome way. Uh, he wants to kind of impress upon the idea to his audience that no, there are some lives that are, Broadly speaking, you know, you would consider objectively not worth living. And I'm I don't think he, to, you know, I don't think he would say that, Yassine. I don't think he would say objectively. Well, I think he's pretty maybe objectively, he would say objectively. Right. Maybe objectively is not the right term, but it, what I mean by that is that there's kind of universal, near universal agreement that this life is not worth living. Uncontroversially not worth living. Yes. There's some, there's, he does cite like, generally people who are of a religious devotion that say all life is worth living. Uh, Jehovah's witnesses would be like uh, one example that value life uber Alice over all other values. And they are rather unconditional uh, on that front. Uh, but that's, that's a fringe idea that isn't uh, widely held. So he has a, he has a quote from the, from the text where he says when describing these sorts of people that the correct or rational choice is to live and not agreeing is simply error or blindness. 
but this fixes the game against me, don't you think? Case closed as far as they are concerned. And I think that that is very much going to be his response. Uh, I don't think he's really interested in this game of, well, what would everyone else say? Or I don't think he's interested in anyone else being the arbiter. Uh, as long as he considers it intolerable from his perspective, then that is what matters. I don't think he's going to care whether we think he was rational or whether anyone does. Well, that opens up the, what I'm trying to highlight is that it does open up this problem scenario where sometimes that conclusion is reached because someone is completely devoid of any coping mechanisms. So I bring up like the absurd scenario of someone trying to kill themselves over a paper cut. Uh, But if we take what, if, if we take the interpretation as you put it to its, you know, logical conclusion, then anyone who wants to kill themselves from a paper cut is their decision is sacrosanct in a way, right? No, I, well, I mean, if it's if it's a subjective evaluation, then why not? I think that it's sacrosanct from whose perspective, right? That we could say that they were, we can think they were incorrect, or we could say that there were other things that they could have done, and maybe we were right, and maybe we were wrong. Um, but I think that from Clayton's point of view, he's just fundamentally not interested in that sort of evaluative game. Um, right, but I think he escapes... And, no, I, I, I get what he, you're saying. He escapes the game because he's clearly in a position where you can't level that criticism against him. Yes. Clayton very explicitly kind of restates the relativistic um, opinion of morality at the sort of things. I say relativistic um, in the real sense of the words of um, cultural relativism, not in the kind of all cultures cultures are equal except for yours your your culture's wrong kind of way most people express it um he he do, does say at the start that um mo- when he talks about morals or rightness he's talking about his morals or his his right rightness that he's discussing his own his own values and that's what he holds and other people can hold other ones but he, and he doesn't resent them for that. He resents people trying to pose their value values on him. He, it's a very, very freedom oriented type thing where he'd say, "No, this is my life. I get to dispose, dispose of it how I choose." This right, is my but choice. I think I think if we limit the discussion around his work to only his life, I, it just loses uh, salience. Like why? I very much don't want to do that, Yassine, but I think that this kind of discussion of, well, how can we, what's, by which standard can we evaluate objectively whether somebody is right in their fundamental values they are going to say is what makes life worth living. I think that's kind of just going to end up being a myopic discussion where you don't need to draw a hard line. Well, he he argues against the very idea of of objective values or that that can be demonstrated he this was at the height of the new atheism debates for listeners who haven't read read the piece um very emphatically insists that no absent absent god there's only only the values you hold hold for yourself and kind of rejects the idea that you could find a a rock bottom source of objective morals or objective objective values um his 
his very hard, hard point was that, no, you have to choose values for yourself and you've got to live by that. And he had chosen values that he found beautiful and excellent, excellent and had accorded his life in that way and then suffered this accident such that he could never be virtuous, virtuous or live a beautiful, worthwhile life, life again. And he was so in love with his, so loved his ideals that he had chosen the life he had made, made for himself that he refused to kind of accept what would be, be even by normal people's standards, one of the worst lives imaginable. Yeah. So the reason I bring up this topic, I want to, I want to quote from him. Uh, the reason I bring up this topic is because he discusses it at length when, uh, when he was seeking disability accommodations for law school, one of the psychiatrists that he met suggesting suggested putting him on an antidepressant. And he had a very staunch and philosophical objection to being on antidepressant because there's a, there's an argument or at least like in, in his perspective, he would be changing what is an otherwise functioning evaluation mechanism in order to delude himself into thinking that his life is, is okay. And he pushes back on this hard and I don't really, I'm not going to fight him on that, but I'll quote for what he said, quote, I'll say it again for the hundredth time. There is absolutely not a single thing wrong with me other than being paraplegic. Being in love with my life was something right with me and having to live like this can never make me happy. I am sane, sane, sane. I'm a happy, healthy, enthusiastic person inside. How horrible this life is, how very sad and heartbreaking it is for me. I am so sad about it. So he's, he's trying to impress upon the audience that he doesn't want pills to make him happy because he is extremely dedicated to the idea that nothing is wrong with him. It's his life that is fucked up. It's the conditions that he's currently experiencing that is fucked up. It's not his assessment of those conditions that is wrong with him. Do you think he's wrong about that, Yusin? No, but that the, the part that I'm grappling with is if we had two arms and a head, but it was written by someone who got a paper cut, but he laid out the exact same arguments, my impression would be completely different. I would think this person has a mental illness that or is completely lacking in basic coping skills, that there's something fundamentally wrong with how their thought process works. I wouldn't have the level of sympathy that I have for Clayton's experience. And I think it's largely a difference of magnitude. And what I'm trying to grapple with is, is it really that simple? Is it just like, if it's bad enough, then, then we give them like, you know, like kind of license to do with what we, what they will. Can I just offer a few reflections? Go ahead. I really liked the, um, the, the point where he talks about antidepressants. Um, but there's something a little bit odd to that about, uh, about that to me. So, just here's a simple everyday example. Like I, uh, I'm, I'm a runner and um, I often get little injuries and, um, you know, I've got painkillers I can take, but I try not to take them for running injuries, at least if I'm still running, because the pain I feel is a very useful guide to me, right? When I'm pushing my knee too hard, when I'm putting too much weight on that, the pain is a useful signal for me to try and get my life back in order, my knees back in order in this case. And that's a very natural way of reading what he says about antidepressants. But the thing is, he doesn't think he's got a life to get back in order. He doesn't think he's doing any emotional healing. So his decision to take antidepressants 
doesn't make a lot of sense in that regard. It's like if I said, oh, I'm never going to go running again because my knees are too fucked and I'm still not going to take antidepressants. This idea of correctly gauging your emotions um, and your effective well-being makes a lot of sense if you think that you're doing some useful work with yourself. But if you're not, if you've basically said, yeah, my life is permanently fucked, then it's not clear to me why you wouldn't want to at least cushion the pain until you go through some kind of a personal process of healing, right? You know, until you just get over it in some way that doesn't you know, require, yeah, require you to just um, uh, move on in some way that doesn't involve active processing. Would you say the same thing if the other option wasn't antidepressants, which is kind of a socially and societally approved means of altering your consciousness, but instead it was like, oh, I could commit suicide or I could go on heroin and develop a heroin, heroin addiction. Like they, they both greatly impact your mental cognition and your ability to, to live the cognitively same, same life. They both affect your judgment. They both make you a very different person. In a lot of, a lot of respects. I mean, I think there is an argument, certainly. I mean, this, this comes up a lot in palliative care, right? I mean, if you're on palliative care, then there's a lot of the classical arguments for not being on high doses of, uh, of, uh, of narcotics disappears, right? I mean, certainly if I'm dying somewhere, I wanna, I've got no particular commitment to going out with a clear head, if I'm, particularly if I'm in some, some serious pain, you know, dope me up with morphine, um, and I'll write out my life that way. Um, so, I mean, I think if you're... If you're not, if you're not trying to live for something, then it's not clear to me why you would resist the uh, the extra help that comes from pharmaceutical help. So I think that this is this very much goes to a key theme of authenticity, um, where you know there's a, there's a classic kind of meme that will be left in the show notes of a patient in a psychiatrist's office who's saying, ah, oh, I wish we could create a better society that wasn't inherently soul crushing. And then the psychiatrist says, well, the best I can do is pills that trick your brain into thinking you don't hate it here. And I think that as people, we tend to fundamentally reject inauthenticity. And we want to say that if we're going to, if our only option, and if what we're going to say you should do is lie to yourself or try to change your point of view such that it's not true to what you think it should be, or it's not true to yourself, then potentially we might think that that's a worse fate. That's a fate worse than death. And I think that's very much what Clayton was saying here. I guess in that example, though, there's at least one argument. There's one reason that strikes us as kind of awful is because it removes one of the impetuses for social change, right? I mean, the whole idea of Soma and Brave New World and so on. If you can drug people into being satisfied with their material conditions when their material conditions are outrageous, then that prevents meaningful change to material conditions. But I mean, I'm not clear on what Clayton was trying to do with this last component of his life. Unless there is, and this is also a theme, I guess, although not one that came through as strongly as it might have done, is sort of bare witness, right? I think if he'd said clearly, look, the reason I don't want to take these pills is because this is an important message I have to communicate. And my, this book is my final work. Um, that would have, that would have, I think lent more meaning to it. And maybe that's what was in the back of his mind. That's one way of rationalizing his decision not to just sort of 
cushion his 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 pain. No, so I, I very much I see what what uh, Dog is saying, what Doug Latine is saying here, but I think that at the end of the day, you can put you know whatever gloss on what's going on that you want, but fundamentally, what you're what the the advocate in this case of saying that oh Clayton's only problem was that he didn't alter his consciousness such that the values that he had were supplanted by new values, you know, in a sense, replacing his self with uh, a new self. If that's what you're going to say is the problem. And obviously there's degrees, you know, as, as you brought up with the painkiller example, Dogaltine, but I think that there's a real, a real and important way in which what such a, an, an intervention would do is change what you care about. Right. Because that's, that's the point. That's the mechanism. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a broader sort of set of questions. Uh, okay. So I can, I want to come to what you're saying, Xantos, but if I may, I'd just like to take a step back and maybe draw a distinction that's been lurking. So on the one hand, we have this question of, was it right? Was it rational for Clayton in the circumstances in which he found to kill himself? And I feel, um, you know, the paper cut example in that situation is, is powerful because like it's clearly a stupid thing for someone to do with a paper cut. It's clearly not rational for someone with a paper cut um, to kill themselves. So call that the hedonic question. But there's a second question, which is the identity question, which is sort of even if we assume that, let's say, it was right for Clayton or it was rational for him given his values to make that choice, do we want to raise our kids to have values like Clayton's? I mean, speaking for myself, right, I... Even if there's something for me to admire in what Clayton, um, in his sort of worldview, I think it's a very fragile, um, fragile sense of identity and one that I would not like my kids to have. I mean, life can throw all sorts of curveballs at you. And if you can have a broad-based sense of identity or a broad-based sense of what you can be, of how you can self-actualize, then I think that's, that's mentally healthy. I mean, to go to a cliched example, you know, Beethoven losing his sense of hearing, right? If people can, um, even even people with sort of a passion, if they face a, a clear aspect of their life that grounds their identity, if they can overcome that, then I think that is the mark of a, a strong and impressive human being. Um, and so, look, in one sense, it's just clear Clayton was in so much pain that there is no, that, you know, I'm certainly not going to say that it was irrational for him to end his life. Um but on the other hand, yeah, I don't think it's a great way of living necessarily, a great way of founding your identity um, to make it so contingent upon youth and masculinity and virility. I mean, not, I mean, I wonder how Clayton would have dealt just with getting getting old for a start. Sure. I, I think there's a couple of things to say here, and I'll, I'll only pick one of them, which is that you hear this sort of thing a lot of the time. I know there was a, there was a, post in either Slate Star Critics or The Mott, which we'll link in the show notes. And one of the responses to Two Arms, One Head in that post was, oh, I feel bad for this kind of person. You know, I view suffering as just, you know, a, a temporal moment in which there's the absence of pleasure. And so we should just kind of suffer and then eventually we'll have moments of pleasure in between. And my reaction to that, and I think that that kind of grounds a lot of this sort of response, right? And I think my reaction to that sort of view is, I don't want, maybe it's, maybe that, that it's monstrous is too, is too strong, but 
has, has such a person ever suffered in a, in a, in a meaningful sense? I mean, I just, it's so alien and so beyond like pain is painful. And so to say that, oh, we should, you know, ground our identity in such a way that it's not affected by suffering to me is just, I, I cannot wrap my head around it. I think you're slightly strawmanning me here. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone suffers, suffering's awful and suffering's inescapable. Uh, but the fact is the world contains people who have spectacularly overcome both incredible personal suffering um, and also suffering that is directly aimed at their identity. Um, and there are so many impressive examples of people overcoming that. Now, I'm aware that's not Clayton's situation. His identity was very tightly bound up on this very particular vision, and that's, that's who he was. But at the same time, to the extent that I could give my kids as a father a worldview which empowers them to um, always look for ways of adapting or overcoming, I think that's something really valuable, you know, which is not to deny the reality of suffering, but to say that, look, this is something humans can do. Humans can be the kind of person who can overcome this stuff. And in light of that, why wouldn't you want to raise your kids to be that kind of, have that kind of identity? Here's the thing, though. You would want to raise your kids to be like Clayton. He, there are lots of, there are lots of neuroses and, and like bad outcomes that ha- come from having a value set around having too exact a type, type of life or following a life track too exactly or having too clear a vision of what your no- life needs to be. Oh, I didn't get into Stanford Law. My life is a over we all have encountered no of people people like this where their life is that tracked in a minor deviation they'd almost be willing to kill themselves clayton isn't that clayton he was following a very circuitous path to his life he wasn't a careerist he was in his 30s and he was in his very early 30s i think he was exactly 30 30 to 32 and was just starting to attend his first year of law school. He he had done manual labor. He he had worked summers, summers just um, I think it was plumbing or drywalling. He had done. He had lived a. He hadn't lived this this exact like precise non this life where he hadn't encountered university. He had lived a very meaningful life. If anything, his values were incredibly conductive to well-led life. And a massive part part of that was that there was a lot of deliberateness to it. He did have a very clear vision of how he wanted to live. And I can tell you right now, as someone who's getting together my motorcycle and camping gear for an extended trip, a lot of deliberate planning, but you want, but it wasn't inflexible in this way. There's a huge amount about Clayton to admire. And I think there are lots of virtues in him that are, notable because of their rarity in the modern world and yeah i want my kids to have those virtues but i do think those virtues are separable from a certain kind of inflexibility of identity and i say that because there are people who have lived equally impressive lives and have faced equally or compare i don't want to say comparably exactly but injuries in the same ballpark or setbacks in the same ballpark who have nonetheless gone on to excel even further now i mean maybe I think to the extent that, you know, 
I think it is possible to give people the kind of virtues that Clayton had without this. I think it is a vice that he exhibited this inflexibility. To the extent that we can give people the virtues without the vice, I think that's something we should be aiming for when thinking about re- re- uh, rearing the next generation. I, I, I don't see it that way. You're either going, to my mind, you're either going to be, like there are trade-offs when it comes to values. To my To my mind, you're either going to be creating someone who, who if if suffering doesn't doesn't matter and even absence of joy doesn't matter matter that much, and it's like, oh yeah, I'll suffer, but I'll get these brief moments of joy. Like that's a philosophy that creates someone who's mi- who miserably stays at their dead end job for forty years, forty years before retiring on social security, and is like five hundred pounds throughout it like the philosophy that's that's espoused by a lot of the people who say yeah but you know you're there's going to be stuff you you enjoy despite the fact that you aren't going to be living a life of virtue like that kind of hedonic there is well there is the question of resilience i think we keep dancing around this this topic there's there's a baseline resilience that we expect of people to be able to surmount speed bumps that they encounter. Uh, and then sometimes the speed bumps are much more than that. They're craters on the road. And so it's much more understandable if someone just gives up. Uh, I'm trying to think back to times in my life when I've contemplated killing myself. And sometimes those triggers seem quaint uh, in retrospect. I'm not saying that they necessarily always are for everyone, but the thinking back, like me being late for turning in a paper for law school or me being rejected by a girl for like the third time in a month, to me, like in the grand scheme of things, it does seem inconsequential, but at the moment it was imposing on on my psyche. And so there's a part of me that just wants to be cautious about this, uh, you know, talking about someone's circumstances and their the complaint about their circumstances with disdain, as in, oh, like you know, get a grip, like just just tough it out. Uh, but I'm left speechless by by Clayton's work, precisely because it's it is of such profound gravity that it just feels. I think like the main argument in his favor is that it just comes off as cruel to to say oh, I know better than you. You just need like better coping skills and then you'll be happy as two arms and one head. Right. I mean, just to be clear, my, um, my, I'm not certainly not saying that he just needed to pull himself together. I'm saying that the way that he had built his identity through doubtless through early childhood onwards, put him in this, uh, this position where he probably may quite possibly have had no other choice. The question is, a question I was asking is really one about character and virtue, whether we want to build whether we want to raise our kids to um, fall into this inescapable trap that I think in some way was inescapable for him. Although, I mean, I also think there's another question. So, I mean, I take it we've been talking about what I call the identity issue, right? Is this, is his identity a, a virtuous identity, a laudable identity that we want to want to praise, um, at least in this regard? And we move back to the hedonic question, um, what I call the hedonic question. I mean, to what extent did it make rational sense for him to kill himself? And I mean, on the one hand, you have the incredible pain that he's clearly in and the incredible suffering of a very existential and deep-seated kind. But on the other hand, I think it's likely um, that had he been 
had he not killed himself, had just circumstances prevented him from doing so, he would have lost that urge to self-destruction. He would have, his identity probably would have adapted. He would have found a new identity. And that's not necessarily to say that he made the wrong choice in killing himself. But I think it raises this sort of important set of questions about um, whether if surmounting your pain means becoming a different person, can that be can that be justified? Can that be rational? Um, certainly, I think we all have transformative experiences and our lives, our identities change over the course of our life. So this idea that, oh, um, he had to kill himself, otherwise he would have... Uh, lost his identity he wouldn't have become he wouldn't have he would have cha- changed into a different person i don't think that's a slam dunk argument people change their identity all the time come out the other side with different values because of experiences in war experiences in childbirth religious experiences and sometimes we can plot a meaningful trajectory of that person over their lifetime and see something valuable in each of its stages yeah but what if you find those values completely completely hateful for example if you lived in in 1930s Germany, you could be miserable thinking you're living in the worst regime that ever existed, or, you know, it's going to be a thousand year Reich. You could just adopt the values of a Nazi. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to use an example like that. <laughs> well, you see what I mean? Like, no, look, it's much simpler to just say values change. And I understand that, that there can be like revulsion at the thought that your values can change, especially if you build up an identity around that which is, I think, what Doglatine's point is, right? Yeah. I mean, that can be, it can feel revolting. I mean, you know, lots of us, I mean, think about people who've gone either side of either a religious conversion or a loss of faith. I mean, either side of that, you know, you might look at your earlier self or your later self with revulsion. But I mean, I think we can still meaningfully talk about a good life as containing both of those stages. Um, and also, I mean, it's not clear to me. I mean, I think maybe one theme that comes through is Clayton would have hated to become the precisely the kind of wishy-washy um, sun and rainbows disability a- activist that he's so critical of. But I mean, that wasn't the only pathway open to him. I mean, he could have become, I mean, God, I would have just loved another book like this. If he had become a writer, um, if he had found a way to persist with his sort of Nietzschean ideology, but keeping up the message, um, just to give one example, I think there are ways he could have perhaps given time in time um, his values would have shifted to allow him to live a life that was broadly concomitant with his his values, even if it would have required some kind of identity shift. Yeah, but you can tell that this book was written by pain as the yeah. ink. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're factually right about that, Doglatine, that you know, if he had not done what he had and had given it a decade or two that, or at any shorter time scale, that he would have come to a different conclusion, sure. But I think, and this is the question that really resonated with me of the work and that I'm really interested in is, I think that says less about him potentially and more about the nature of, of copes and of kind of the ability, the potential of, of opiates of all sorts, be they, you know, actual opiates or, you know, um, you know, of ideology, ideological opiates or opiates of any sort to pacify us into being okay with things that we otherwise would not have been okay with. I guess I'm not sure that it would have had to have been a cope. Um, I mean, you use examples like opiates and they're very evocative precisely because they involve a sort of dulling of the senses and moving away from truth. But I'm not sure that was the only pathway open to him in the long run. 
I mean, he has a powerful Nietzschean worldview. And I mean, I guess one, one, one rebuttal to me that you could give is, look, he couldn't have written another book like this because then it would have lost its authenticity. The, the, the trajectory of this book, of this masterpiece, ends in suicide. That is the only authentic end to it. Um, but I nonetheless think, and you know, this is maybe an open question that only Clayton could have answered, but I, whether or not there will be ways for him to channel and adapt to express his values in an authentic way, very unlike not just a matter of cope, but as a matter of adaptation that would have allowed him to develop and inspired with future works, not in the coping way that you describe, or, you know, in the saccharine way in which he describes other disability activists, but as a, as a distinctive voice in disability rights movements in disability activism. I mean, that strikes me as not, not necessarily impossible. Whether or not it was ever going to be psychologically on the cards for him is, you know, only, only he could answer. Maybe we should uh, shift more towards talking about how the work perhaps resonated with us personally. My, my next point was going to be that. So I, I have a, deeply personal story there that relates to this um said at the start that i got a motorcycle after reading this um clayton's description of his his life and how he went through life prior to his accident inspired me that much that that um after researching a been just happening on some different motorcycle videos online and also dealing with lockdown i decided to get a motorcycle so when you buy a motorcycle as a young person, there, I, I just want to say you're probably the only person whose takeaway from reading this is I should get a motorcycle. Right. My, my I had exactly the opposite takeaway. <laughs> I am never, ever getting on a motorcycle because I mean, I, <laughs> that's like, that, that's consonant with history in a way, because like it just shows you the capacity of something so stupid, something so trivial to destroy. A beautiful yeah. But that's also true of car crashes and diving into pools and, all kinds of other things. But continuing with the story, the hardest part of getting a motorcycle is that you have to tell your family members you're getting a motorcycle. <laughs> so, yeah, right. so, so I, my mom had a motorcycle. There was no problem there. My dad across his life has become very nervous of everything. He went from working, working 30 stories up building, um, building mills as a kid to now he can't look, watch a movie where someone looks down, down heights. So he was nervous about it. And well, then I have to tell my grandmother. Mother, indeed I, I was storing it in her garage over the winter. So I have to tell my grandmother I'm getting a motorcycle and grandma does not approve. She worked in an insurance off office. She, she's seen motorcycles action. Accidents come in out. She's dead set against it, and she says to me, "Well, what if, what if you're killed, killed on a motorcycle like that happens?" And I said, "Well, then I will. I'll be dead. I won't care." And then she says, "Well, what if you're injured hor- horribly and and you're paralyzed, and all of a sudden your family has to take care of you?" And I replied to her, "Well, then I'd commit suicide." <laughs> And this is kind of the really big takeaway from this piece for me is that the entire work could be summarized at almost in that Seneca quote that um, life without the courage for death is slavery. That if you aren't willing to take the risk of 
of dying, even just stepping out of your, your house or taking the normal risks that you go th- go through in your your life or the risks of getting on a motorcycle, you aren't really going to live. You're going to go through your life as a slave. You're never going to achieve the heights that you want to achieve. You're never going to be truly free in any, any meaningful sense. You have to be willing to accept the possibility for death and and to be able to say if that horrible thing would be so intolerable for me that I can't can't risk it. You have to be able, willing to say, well, no, I'd just be risking dying, and I risk that every day. If you let life or circumstance or your enemy say, no, it can do all of this to you, that, oh, you you risk it, death every day, but, you know, this could happen to you, and that's worth, worse than death. You need to have the courage to say, no, I can choose. I can choose to not endure worth and, worse than death. I can choose death. But I mean, Kulak, I mean, I, I agree with you in one sense. Look, I guess there's a sort of broader political point that resonates particularly for you, I'm guessing, here, which is that sort of as long as people are willing to die rather than live under tyranny, then tyranny is impossible. Complete tyranny is impossible, right? There's a kind of political aspect to this. But I mean, just on a very mundane note, right? There's just cost-benefit analyses, right? I mean, sure, like being able to die for the, being willing to die for the right things is maybe an important human virtue, but... Um, also, not risking your life for petty things. Like, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm aware that motorbike, but some people find them amazing. It, it is the single greatest thing you will ever experience. Like, well worth it. You will be, you will live as Clayton if you have a motorcycle. <laughs> I think one of the reasons I found uh, reading this works to be so distressing and disturbing is because uh, I was keenly reminded of me not living to the full capacity that I could thereafter. I think I was sitting at my desk playing video games and I realized that I was only making use of my, my arms and my head and literally nothing else Mm. and felt just tremendous shame that someone was so starving and so hungry to experience something more than that, that they ended their existence over that uh, lack. And here I am kind of wallowing in it without doing anything about it. I had a similar reflection. Oh, sorry, Thanos, I'll let you, I'll let you go ahead. Just super quick. I immediately, throughout the time I was reading, I was reaching down, flexing my toes, stretching my legs, rubbing my legs, thinking, oh my God, I am so grateful for this amazing body I have. Um, not, not, that, not that my body is particularly amazing, but you know, having a body that works, that allows me to walk to the bathroom and back in one minute is, is an amazing thing. So that was one of the sort of things that I took away from it. Santos? absolutely had kind of a similar sort of experience you've seen. And I think that it goes to my broader reaction to the text, which was, I think Clayton's situation is reflected to some extent of having um, the situation being having values that are incompatible with lived actuality are, you know, is is widely applicable, and you can kind of see that aspect in certainly my life, and certainly I think many many people's lives, and that's a real problem that people don't grapple with, and that I have my own personal problems and struggles with. But I think it needs to be addressed. How do you think it needs to be addressed? Well, I think you have to come to. Uh, one conclusion or the other, right? Um, there's a there's a famous book by 
I'm going to get the French French pronunciation wrong, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway by uh, Camus, uh, where he says that, you know, suicide is the only serious fun philosophical question. And basically if you, if you aren't sure whether or not your values are compatible with the life that you're living, you've, you're doing something wrong. You need to have an answer to that question, whether it's the answer, whether it's a yes or a no, I think is, uh, uh, that, that will be found out after you do the, the introspection. Right. But I think that a large slice of people are, are not doing the introspection in any meaningful way. And I think I'd include myself among those people. Yeah. And I'd say this, the text has taken on a really pressing, um, political and social valence and especially the past year, given, given that we're living our lives now through zoom, what is zoom? You can see someone's arms in their head at that. Everyone now is just like living through, through their laptops, living through their devices, not being able to live the full experience that clean died for lack of. Can I just also say, I think there are, um, we're getting onto one theme here about, um, about how well one should live one's life. And I think there, that's an interesting sub-theme. But I take it the primary theme for me from this book is about identity and suicide and to what extent, um, yeah, the issues we've discussed. Although one thing we, I think we should flag is that, I mean, the, the Socrates angle here, right? I mean, this is a philosopher who basically chose to die and in so doing, he could have otherwise lived because he wanted to preserve authenticity and live in accordance with his values. And that, I mean, in, a, in an indirect but powerful way, there is obviously Socrates' own decision to take Hemlock rather than take options for escape when he could have done. So I think that's a powerful thing that I mean, obviously Clayton is very aware of. But this other theme I wanted to mention is this misanthropy. And that's one thing I definitely want to distance myself from. I love so much of what Clayton has to say, but there's this passage early on, and it's going to quote from the book here. He says, um, uh, I, as Hamlet said, most people do simply delight not me. The fact is that we are in many ways not much different from the animals, and it takes a great deal of work and time to become a human being. I do not believe most put in that work. I try not to despise people in part because it's not good for my purity of heart, and in part because it's not bound to be very productive. In short, a great human being is the greatest being in the known universe, and a mediocre one is just a mediocre animal. That is a powerful and dangerous sentiment that I think can lead to some lead in some really dark directions. I think by contrast, I want to, here's one place I definitely want to distance myself from Clayton. There's a nice line in uh, C.S. Lewis, I think it's in the Scroop Tate letters, where he talks about um, how the greatest thing in the universe is a husband and wife having dinner in their garden on a summer evening. It's two old friends reconnecting, catching up. It's a father playing with their child. These ordinary human joys the, that are the mark of most people's lives are the most valuable, greatest thing, not the person going ice fishing in Alaska, doing a motorbike tour of, of the Americas. That's great as well. But like, I think the core human value resides in the everyday. And I think that is a fundamental philosophical dispute. And I think I'm on the opposite side of Clayton on that one. So maybe this is just, it. this is where the work just taps too much into my own neuroses for me to see things clearly. That's definitely potentially true. Um, but I think in, in juxtaposition to you, Dongleteen, I had a very different reaction to the kind of underlying misanthropy of the, of the text where I think he's broadly correct. And I think that that's, that's, it's certainly chilling in some ways, but I, I think it's hard for me to disagree. 
I worry that uh, it leads, there's even something a little bit fascist about that view. That this idea that, you know, some humans are basically animals and some humans are great. And the idea of this sort of great man idea that some humans are sheep and have correspondingly diminished moral value and others are the great man and they, their lives are worth infinitely more than those of the sheep. This package of views, I think, has historically been very destructive. And I think, I don't know, I'm not saying it's necessarily false. It's, it's not something I disagree with. It's certainly something I disagree with. Um, but I, I do find it out a very scary view. Right. So I can clear, I can clarify my my statement here and just say that. Well, I think that the the, the factual nature of that's that part is is up for debate, and we can have we could debate about that in terms of moral views. But I, I think more in terms of, um, not so much whether people's the lives that people are living have objectively more or less value. I think that from a subjective perspective, there's, there's been a lot, I think, as I've said, there's been a lack of consideration and a lack of subjective value of people's, the own of their own lives that people are living. You think that's what's lacking is like more, it's this introspection aspect of it. No, I don't think the introspection is what's lacking. I think introspection would have serious consequences because people are, have taken one of the other options that was presented to Clayton, right? Where he, he could have taken the antidepressants or he could have muddled through and undergone the value changes and not thought about what he actually cared about. I think that state of, of either non-caring or of saccharine, you know, opiate induced non-care is the state that I think most people, probably myself included, you know, live our lives in. Right. So this is something that I keep coming back to is, I, I acknowledge that there's a there's a myopic perspective on my end in that, for example, I, I, I see people who have been wrongly accused and convicted and they spend like 30 years in jail and then you ask them and then they, when they're finally released, you ask them how their well-being is and they're just kind of like over the moon, overjoyed and not a, like a revengeful bone in their body. Whereas if I try to imagine like how I would be in that circumstance, if like a prosecutor was responsible or a detective was responsible for putting me in jail for 30 years, I would, I don't think I would ever stop thinking about how to murder them. Uh, I I would be over consumed by the thought of revenge. Yeah. But that doesn't seem to happen for people that, that get released uh, when they're exonerated. And I'm from my standpoint, I'm just confused. I'm like, why don't you just want to, you know, murder everyone that was responsible for erasing, eradicating 30 years of your life or whatever. And I, I just get baffled by it. But the, I ha- but at the same time, because it doesn't happen, I'm, I have to acknowledge that there must be something fundamental that changes about that, about their value system. And that's just like one example. It doesn't have to be the only one. I mean, when I, when I wrote about the death of one of my clients, I, I, and Clayton does the same thing. He talks about people who are uh, prison for life. We don't even have to go there. I just think about all the clients that I have who are homeless or are, otherwise downtrodden or disadvantaged or marginalized and living on the fringe uh, with no hope whatsoever of escaping. I think in particular of uh, the people that I know that have to register as a sex offender, by far out of the demographic that I deal with, the people that have to, that are registered sex offenders are like the most broken individuals I ever have the opportunity to interact with. They're just hollow they flinch at every interaction. They're just dead. They, they're, they're basically sleepwalking through life. 
They have nothing to look forward to. No one wants to hire them because they have a, a sex offense on their record. No one wants to rent to them, so they're chronically homeless. And when they're homeless, they have to register with the, the authorities regarding the specific place they have to sleep. So they literally have to go to the sheriff's office every 72 hours and say, I am going to sleep under this bridge. And if they don't do this, then they're taken to jail and the penalties for not registering as a sex offender just ramp up. So when I think of someone who is experiencing a life not worth living in my eyes, I think of a a registered sex offender because they have nothing to go for, but they don't, some of them still are still alive. And that puzzles me. I just think, why, why, why are you still living? Is it just delusion? Is it just like a complete shift in values that you experience? And it's this gap that I, that I struggle with uh, closing. Yeah. So just to, um, just to get, be clear, make sure I understand the point, the idea is when you undergo these extreme changes of circumstances, it's easy to put yourself in these people's positions and say, Oh, here's what I'd do. I'd, you know, I'd murder the judge. I'd, I'd kill myself in a second. And yeah, it can be very hard to empathize or rather we was continually surprised when we see the way people actually respond to these circumstances. Is, is that sort of the broader point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just to offer another example, because I mean, I completely agree. I just finished reading a book, uh, Storm of Steel, um, a biography of uh, one of the first biographies published of the um, experience of a World War One soldier on the German side. And uh, it's a surprisingly sunny work. It has its really dark moments, but a lot of it is like, oh, we got really drunk. We went over the trenches. Uh, I, I came back with all my grenades gone. I can barely remember half the night and my buddy Hans was shot. Oh, it was a great night. I mean, I'm just slightly hyping it up, but I mean, again, part of me thinks, hang on, I cannot conceive of how I could be exposing myself to mortal danger on a nightly basis with friends dying left, right, and center and be thinking this is a great night with the lads. Um, of course, look, I mean, this, there are lots of questions about that book. He's writing in a particular context, but even if you look at um, interviews, uh, Peter Jackson's did a hundred year retrospective on people who had served on the front world, first world war, um, collated a bunch of interviews. And one theme that stood out was plenty of them said, only these were the best days of my life. So, I mean, I just, this is just to endorse your view that when you're dealing with the extremes of human experience, as Dan Carlin would put it, um, you get surprised by what human psychology does in those situations, which is almost, I think, part of what makes this work unusual. I think rather than being amazed at his resilience, like a, there's a certain degree of there, but for the grace of God, go we, right? I mean, his reaction and his circumstances when he describes all its horror is very very reasonable. Relatable. Yeah, it's yeah. relatable. That's what, that's what struck me so much about the work. Nothing about it really surprised me aside from the specific circumstances. The, his reaction to it was normal, was expected. Can I raise um, a slightly different thread here? Just um, because I think one interesting question to me is why this work hasn't met with a broad audience. And I'm sure there are copyright issues. I don't know who owns the work. You can't buy it as an ebook on Amazon, but I think, I hope that it's going to come to a broader audience. I think it really is a masterpiece. I think it's one of the most meaningful things I've read in years. And I think it does deserve a broader attention. Thinking, and I think there are various questions we could explore about that. But I just wanted to flag, and I'm sorry, I'm sure I'm going to get some groans here. But I think when this comes to a broader audience, a large part of the conversation is going to be about toxic masculinity and its role in its condition, as well as male suicide in general. Of Of course. But I think it's it's not going to come to a, a wider audience because of the conclusion, right? Like there are works about paraplegia that have come to a wider audience. Um, I know my my mother read and enjoyed Me Before You and that kind of thing. But largely the, the works that do come to a wider audience in that vein are 
at least life affirming or beautiful in some sense. And I think two arms, one head for all of its, you know, unquestionable power and its meaning is fundamentally at odds with the, the uh, sensibilities of sensibilities required to be a mainstream work. Yeah. I I actually don't think the issue is going to be toxic masculinity. I think it's going to be by definition, this work is ableist because it, it, it presents the perspective of one disabled individual, but they conclude that their life is not worth living because their life as a disabled individual sucks. So you can't get more, I guess, politically incorrect than that. And it forces everyone to grapple with the delusion, or at least that what, what Clayton argues is the delusion that disabled people have to live with. I mean, he is, of course, that's very clear that you know, his experiences are not anyone else's. It was his life circumstance. He doesn't advocate this is a choice in general for people in his condition. It was, I mean, I think, right, just but I think his perspective is what a non-disabled person is going to be, uh, be able to relate to. And that's probably uncomfortable to grapple with that conclusion. So I suspect it will reach a wider audience just because just because the political valence and the the cultural valence shifts so quickly, I could I could imagine assisted suicide or something becoming a major issue at some point, and all suddenly this being being cited or just just different interest groups shifting it interest. Um, a work shockingly shockingly similar to this. Um, Johnny got his gun from 1938 about someone in an equivalent or even more horrifying circumstance, um, blinded in, in a hospital room, room, no limbs, um, no face, can't communicate with anyone or, or anything. Um, came out in 1938 as a socialist critique of world war, war one. And immediately the author pulled it, um, as soon as world war two started because, he didn't want to detract from the war. He was a socialist. He supported the Soviet Union and he wanted his country to support the Soviet Union too. And for, for a good five, ten, ten years, it was completely out of circulation. The author would, would even receive letters from, from like a right wing isolationist asking for copies of the book and he'd report them to the FBI, like that far memory hold. And, and it came back and became a major hit after after the war and was kind of a defining work of the 60s and the anti-Vietnam movement. So this stuff, anything that's good, I expect to be to just increase in prominence. I wonder if Scott knows about it. Hmm. It would be I would be really interested to hear his humanist take on it. And I mean, and frankly, I think, it, you know, if Scott would have. Do a Substack post about it. This would go. This would go by. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I would love to. I would love to read that. Uh, one thing I wanted to also tack on to Doug Latine's point is, I think a, a big barrier to it is a, a big barrier to the ableism that is on display. And I'm not saying that as I'm not adding any value judgment to whether this work is ableist or not. Uh, when he talks about sex and how everyone kind of understands or acknowledges that. Uh, how do I phrase this properly? Having a physical disability significantly impairs your sexual attractiveness. That's a, that's a reality. And I'm not ma- making that statement as a, 
as a value judgment or as a normative argument, but that is a reality. And as, as a kind of a consequence, he has particular, he has like particular disdain for able-bodied individuals who specifically reach out to disabled individuals for sexual intercourse or whatever you want to call it. So this, this was surprising to me. I mean, I, well, it may be not surprising, but I, I, guess I disagreed with that. I mean, I'm not sure I get to have an opinion about this, but uh, yeah, Dan Savage talks about this and the problem of uh, what to do if you have um, uh, some kind of injury or some kind of disability and a lot of the attention you're getting is coming from people who are, have a fetish or a specific interest in that. Um, and his, he, he's very clear. He says, look, you can have this sexual proclivity whilst also being entirely reviewing the person in question as um is fully human without objectifying them in any kind of unhealthy way. You know, and he says, look, I mean, you didn't choose to have to be, if a woman has a thing for guys who are six, over six foot five, then, you know, maybe we can say that's an unusual preference, but at the end of the day, that's her preference. And as long as she still regards them as people, um, that's fine. I don't, I don't think the problem is uh, objectifying the other individual. I think what Clayton is implying is that the able-bodied individuals that seek out disabled individuals for sex basically have no other options. I think that's just false though, right? I mean, a lot of, I don't know. Okay. Well, how would you lay out the argument that it's false? I think there's, there's an element of truth to it that is uncomfortable to acknowledge. I mean, he slept with an ex-girlfriend of his who clearly had other options. Yes, but they have a history. That's a, that's a different, um, set of circumstances. I don't think Clayton was claiming that he could not, uh, find somebody. He 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 was clearly sufficiently still physically attractive and charming enough that he could have gotten laid if he if he wanted to. Yeah, I think the specific issue for him was that the things that he valued about himself and wanted to be valued in a partner would be incompatible with someone who was attracted to him because of his disability, not in spite of it. Um, I don't think that generalizes, though. You've seen in the way that you're concerned about. It. I mean, I think someone could think, look, this is a part about myself that I've embraced. Now I've come to terms with. I don't have the use of my legs anymore. And if someone thinks that's uh, a sexy thing about me, then assuming someone can is fine with that, and, you know, there's going to be a degree of variation here, but assuming someone is fine with that, then there's nothing fundamentally unhealthy about that. I feel like we're getting into some, I want to respond, but I think we're going to be get that take us into debates about sex shaming and paraphilias and so on. But, uh, well, I don't think this is really an issue of, okay, just to contextualize it, I'm going to quote from Clayton himself, just so we have the same understanding. So, uh, he, this is a quote they might find he's talking about people who, what he calls devotees, uh, that gravitate towards, uh, people who are in wheelchairs or disabled quote, they might find security in being with a man whose body is broken or enjoy being more powerful in various ways than me. Maybe they could have a taste for the tragic and macabre who knows the exact reasons behind it. Do they sadistically derive pleasure from the degradation of their partners? Do they masochistically derive pleasure from debasing themselves? Do they lack self-esteem and need to be with safe partners who won't leave them, finding security in being with a person of lower dating value? Or maybe wheelchair-disabled devotees are on the whole perfectly normal, psychologically healthy, and wholesome people who just happen to find themselves sexually attracted to severely disabled people. Just getting on that last one. End quote. So there's, there's, no, there's no question that he has... He's suspicious of anyone that would find him attractive in his current state. And I think he's projecting based on how he uh, used to react to people who are disabled. And he, he cites uh, uh, examples of this, of 
how I guess like he felt shame whenever he interacted with the, with someone like when he was like running shirtless and he saw someone in a wheelchair, it reminded him of like a sense of shame that he needed to feel. Um, and I mean, when I was on the dating market, I, I did not want to date someone who was physically disabled. Uh, that's, I don't think that's that proclivity is one that is rare. I think a lot of people share that. And I acknowledge that someone who is disabled is going to have significant hurdles to find a partner that's willing to be with them because that's, it's a lot to handle. So, I mean, I, I agree, but I, I have to, I want to say when I read that line um, that you just quoted that last line, the just kidding line, the just kidding struck me out of nowhere. I mean, it seems to me like entirely plausible. And maybe this is just three years of listening to sex column, sex podcasts, sex and love advice podcasts. But I mean, look, a lot of people don't get to choose their fetishes. Um, most of oh, arguably no one does. And I think there are people who just have whatever reason. Yeah. Just like some people are fixated on feet. There's just something about people with disabilities or a particular kind of disability that really the the question here isn't i mean i acknowledge that fetishes can exist the question here is that it's suspicious when one of the fetishes tends to correlate with traits that are associated with lower dating market value because one of the because one of the explanations is oh you don't you just don't have any options and you're deluding yourself to think that this is a fetish Right. But I mean, the same works for a lot of paraphilias, right? There are inversions of sexual norms in many cases. And look, I mean, you can explore the psychology of... of but I'm just tracking along what would be on the spectrum of high to low dating value. Because if you say I have a fetish for hot people, that's just... that's just, That doesn't... How is that salient, right? But if you say, if you say, oh, the only reason I date ugly people is because I have a fetish for them, I think you'd be a lot of people would be suspicious of that claim. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, how about a woman to give you, um, how about a woman who has a thing for really short guys? She likes guys under five foot three, say, right? I mean, that's an inversion of dating norms, but I don't think that's necessarily unhealthy. If I was a five foot three guy and I met an attractive woman who said she had a thing for short guys, my reaction would be Yahtzee. And you know, this, that's a great situation. Yeah. I don't that's situation. possible. Xantos, do you want to chime in on where you want to take this direction wise? I think that the most powerful piece of the work, at least for me is this is a person who writes about interrogating his own conception of what makes his own values, what makes life living and finds his circumstances wanting. And I think that that is a powerful occurrence and one that's, that's rare. And I think that, you know, some, some people, instinctually want to say that he he was incorrect in his judgment that he should have taken antidepressants or he should have done this or he should have done that and i think first of all that they're factually wrong but i also think that they they missed the point in in some respects and that no it's a i i once said that this entire work was a course in itself of philosophy that um you have the meditations on what is the good lo- a good life what is life worth living you have epistemology how do you know what you, what you know how do you know you aren't lying to yourself you have have morals and meta meta ethics and almost meta metaphysics how how do you ascribe value to different things you have aesthetics uh, everything you could want to take away from from a phil 101 class or phil 201 class class surveying the history of western philosophy and surveying it's pressing importance in day-to-day life all of that's in in this work and more and 
Clayton is just an incredible, an incredible person to guide you through that. And these questions have never, I've never read someone make those questions that pressing or that compelling. So I want to agree with both of you. I think there's just so many wonderful things to be said about this. I think he's just an excellent philosopher as much as anything else. Like, I think he's very good at tracking ideas and developing arguments, anticipating objections. Like, he he just understands how to write persuasive philosophy. Um, He's also obviously brilliantly well-read. One thing I also really appreciated from the book and I took away um, was he talks repeatedly in the book about how the reader's mind is going to recoil from what he's describing and try and explain it away. Uh, as you were saying, Xantos, you know, look for look for ways, look for escape hatches in his situation. Um, and it's so true. Just reading it, you'll, I found myself ineluctably constantly f- trying to find, oh, but could he have done this? Could he have done that? Because at some level, our minds don't want to accept this kind of pain and suffering is inescapable. We want to think there's always a way out besides the one he chose. And in his case, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure that's true. Okay. Is that a good moment to to close off? Uh, my closing statement is read two arms, one head buy a motorcycle. Yeah. If you haven't read it before listening to us yabber about it, you should have done it a long time ago. Santos. Yeah. So I, I think two arms, one head and Clayton's writing poses kind of a primordial question, which is under what circumstances are we okay with living our lives? Uh, I think Clayton's lucid account of the years that he spent kind of wrestling and really painfully so wrestling with himself uh, before finally coming to the conclusion that he did. And, and, you know, the book does end with a live narration of his suicide is that, you know, is it's a, it's a powerful theme in my opinion, at least are, are we really so different than Clayton? We're certainly different with regards to our circumstance. You know, I have full use of my legs and lower torso, but I think Clayton at least had a clear conception of what exactly makes life worth living. And I think that many people, myself included, don't have quite the same salient idea of how our values link up to our circumstances. Uh, I think, for example, that people generally have a quite a strong disgust reaction to sort of inauthenticity. And yet, at the same time, we all live you know, in our everyday lives quite an inauthentic existence. And I think that Clayton's insight that life is only worth living provided, uh, the provided clause being crucial, you know, the question of provided what is, you know, a question that is not only suppressed, I think actively in mainstream discourse, but that is also suppressed individually. Uh, we're, We're almost afraid to ask it. Speaking personally, I'm someone who has quite, quite some extensive experience with suicidal ideation and suicidal thought. And I I think that I I'm quite scared to live up to Clayton's standard that he has set and that he has written about. But I think that that fear is part of what makes this such a, a powerfully evocative work. You seen a, you a non-native speaker as well. Yeah. You can't tell with my uh, thick accent. (laughs) <laughs> zero right so <laughs> that's an accent i thought you were just autistic yeah I mean, that's always the confounding variable uh english is my third language the first is arabic and second is french i learned uh, english when i was 10 i was blessed with uh moving to the united states at 10 years old so 
hit the ground running. That's still in a critical window for language acquisition, I think. So there's certain sounds that I still have trouble making. And if you're uh, keen eared enough, you'd be able to point them out. Okay. That's a, that's a challenge. Hmm. A, br- a tree based rodent. You seen <laughs> a squirrel. Is that what you're asking? And how about a fleshy, coral-dwelling creature, such as one might see in Finding Nemo? A clownfish? A polyp? That starts with the letter A. And Nemo lives in in it. Oh. What? Sounds like the Japanese cartoons. (laughs) Yeah, you're just giving me bad riddles right now. That's right. not my friend. That's my enemy. Now N- Nemoify it. Add an indefinite article. What the hell is in Nemoifying it? You've hell? never seen Finding Nemo? A long he, time ago. He's a clownfish who lives in the and sea? an enemy. The ocean? A sea anemone. You guys are terrible at this. Uh, and they tell the joke. If your goal is finding me Nemo, with, with bad that's riddles, not my friend. That's my enemy. All right, I'm done with this bit now. <laughs> All right, he's not going to say it. He's not. He's gonna I'm, I'm guessing, you know, given my track record of audio, I'm guessing you haven't been able to identify the sound that I have trouble pronouncing in English language. So kudos to me. I I scored this as a win. All right, I don't have a tagline for. Um, for this episode. Welcome to the Bailey where we spend five fucking minutes trying to give shitty riddles to Yasin. I mean, don't we usually come up with those at the end? <laughs> Yasin, can I just guess? Can you tell me Levi's are famous for their blue jeans? Okay. Yeah. You, you, no one no one has come close, so I, I'm in the clear. Okay. okay. I gain uh, immunity for at least All right, you know, repeat seven after years. me this classic tongue twister. The six <laughs> sheiks, six sheep is sick. The sick sheep, the sick sheep is sick. Is All right, just not. <laughs> is it fair that I pass a gauntlet? You pass. You're officially. I'm not the fig plucker or the fig plucker's son, but I'll pluck figs till the fig plucker's done. Repeat that. That's not a hard. That's just a lot. It's not a difficult <laughs> sound. It's just like a weird tongue twister. <laughs> Hey, you seen what have I got in my pockets? Spaghetti? <laughs> no, sorry, that was a that was a, a Hobbit reference. Never mind. Lint. Okay, I'm actually done with this bit now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, please. <laughs>